And now, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, Mr. Mom is a classic 1983 comedy directed by Stan Dragati. The story revolves around a guy named Jack Butler. And Jack is a newly unemployed automotive uh, engineer who finds himself needing to be a stay-at-home dad when his wife lands the job. And Jack has all kinds of struggles trying to adjust to this new life, caring for their three young children. He struggles with chores and cooking and their crazy, busy schedule. And so hilarity ensues throughout the movie as he adjusts to this kind of life, and he runs into all kinds of obstacles like uh, a washing machine that just won't work and the stay-at-home mom network that has a hard time with him joining in. And so there's so many great scenes in this movie, but one of my favorites is when Jack goes to drop the kids off for school and he does it wrong. Now, most of you, many of you can relate to this. Some of you are one week into the new school year, right? And you already dread the car drop-off pickup line. The veterans are frustrated by the newbies who don't know the system, and the newbies are frustrated by the system. And so no one is happy in the car pickup drop-off line. Well, on that first day, Jack takes the kids to school, and he enters the half circle in the wrong direction. And his kids from the back seat said, Dad, you're doing it wrong. And Jack, being a competent, good, intelligent man, says, I'm going to do it the Jack Butler way. And so he pulls in in the wrong direction, and cars are honking, and his kids are humiliated, sinking down in the back seat. And soon the crosswalk guard comes over and motions for him to roll down the window, and she says, Hi, Jack. I'm Annette. You're doing it wrong. And then she explains to him how to do it correctly. And my favorite part of this whole scene is at the very end when he's pulling away from having done it wrong, a mom drives by, rolls down her window in one of those wood panel station wagons and yells, South to drop off, followed by a name that rhymes with boron. And I love that moment. Well, friends, Romans 10 is kind of Paul's Annette moment. He says, hi, Israel, I'm Paul. You're doing it wrong. Last week I mentioned that Paul didn't actually write Romans. He most likely spoke it or dictated it. And a scribe and fellow man of faith, Tertius, wrote it down according to chapter 16. So I kind of imagine maybe the two talking together, wordsmithing, and figuring out how to write this letter of very important things to the believers in Rome. And it was a very diverse audience. The letter was delivered by Phoebe and probably read for the very first time aloud by this female deacon, Phoebe. And in it was addressing issues to the Jews, and sometimes Paul was addressing issues to the Gentiles, and Paul was always talking to the church as a whole. But in chapters 9 through 11, Paul is really focused in on his family, the Israelites, I mean, maybe Tertius made some comment about, well, what about the Jews, Paul? And it made Paul remember, like we talked about last week, his sorrow that they had not been able to see Jesus as the promised Messiah. Or maybe he just remembered his own sorrow and grief because he turns his attention to them and what he hopes for them to know. But it's important to remember that Paul is a Jew. Growing up, he was taught by one of the most esteemed Jewish rabbis or teachers. 
He knew the law. He knew the practices, and he was devoted. And in fact, in Galatians 1.14, he tells us that I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. He was so zealous, so passionate, so convinced that he was right, that he considered Jews that believed and followed Jesus to be dangerous heretics and persecuted them until he became one of them. It happened on a trip. Paul, who was known as Saul at the time, was on his way to Damascus, and Jesus pulled up and motioned for him to roll down the window and said, Hi, Saul, I'm Jesus. You're doing it wrong. And that changed everything for him, including his name. Now known as Paul, he is as earnest as ever, zealous as he could be, but it isn't for the traditions of his ancestors. Now he is zealous and passionate for the truth of Jesus Christ. And in Galatians 1.11, he writes, For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In the movie, Mr. Mom, Jack learns all kinds of things about domestic life. He comes to appreciate all that his wife did for their family and for him over the years and and grows in his understanding. And towards the end of the movie, Jack ends up volunteering at the school where his kids go to, and you know what his job was? He was a crosswalk guard. And in the final scene of the movie, a new dad drives up doing it wrong, and Jack rolls this down, tells him to roll down his window and says, hey man, you're doing it wrong. South to drop off, north to pick up. The Apostle Paul goes from doing it wrong to helping others who are doing it wrong. Paul is now the crossing guard, and he's using what he's learned firsthand to direct the newbies in the faith, those new to Christ, about the good news that God has forgiven us, that God has sent Jesus Christ and he has raised him from the dead that God is setting us right, working within us. And that is what is greater than the law. The Apostle Paul never got tired of sharing this good news. He proclaimed it everywhere he went, and he was particularly burdened for two groups of people. Religious people who are depending on their works to get right with God. And pagan Romans and others who want all of their distractions, their hobbies, their pleasures, their gods, and their life. And both groups, Paul says, are confused. Now today, when we read our scripture text, we jumped right to verse 5. But the first four verses are really important. Paul has said, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I can testify that they have a zeal for God. But it is not based on knowledge, not knowing the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the culmination, the end, the fulfillment of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Paul notes the passion and enthusiasm of his people for God, but then confesses that their zeal is misplaced. You see, they see the law as a means of earning God's favor through religious activity. 
Obedience to the law will save them and make them right before God, but Paul insists a right relationship with God or righteousness does not come from the law. It comes from faith in Christ alone. And then to help the listeners differentiate between righteousness from law and righteousness through faith, Paul looks at verses 6 through 13 and tells us a bunch of reasons and things from Hebrew scripture that they would understand. They'd be familiar with that scripture and he reframes it so that they can see what they've always believed is now demonstrated and fulfilled in Christ. It's what Christ has done for them. He has ended or fulfilled the law. What the law could not do, Christ has done. And so here's what Paul tells the Romans. If you trust in the law for your salvation, then it becomes an idol. You are believing that you can earn your grace and into the right relationship with God, which is a rejection of God's grace. If you trust the law for your salvation, then you're setting yourself up for a life of guilt and shame and captivity because no one can live it perfectly. Reaching God by keeping rules is impossible. Perfection is unattainable, but Jesus is not. He is accessible. Paul says you don't have to climb up to the heavens or crawl down to hell. It's all been done for us. What Paul believes his fellow Israelites need to be saved from is their anxious and endless striving to save themselves. Maybe you know something about that. Paul did. In Philippians 3, he says that when it came to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. He lived it perfectly. But Paul still didn't have peace with God. Not until he met Jesus. And that's when things changed for him. That's when he could let out a sigh of relief and breathe again. And it wasn't because of anything that Paul did. It was because of what Jesus did. Whatever the price of salvation was, it had been paid in full. Now, before we get a little too arrogant and think, well, we understand the law can't save us, Mel. I think if we are honest, we too find it hard to trust that God's grace is sufficient for us. Our traditions, our churches, our parents, our peers, our sermons, our pastors, our curriculum often lead us to believe that we must follow a list of do's and don'ts in order to be fully accepted by God. But if we're trusting in our own behavior, then we're not fully trusting Christ. And it is easy for right living to become this idol, but focusing on our efforts to lead in our lives is an endless cycle of guilt and shame and captivity, self-reliance. Perhaps we can see how we can begin to think that we are somehow responsible for our salvation by what we do or what we don't do. And friends, it's really difficult, I think, for us and our culture especially to understand this. Because we are taught to earn our way in life, right? That you have to deserve your seat at the table. That you have to earn love in your relationships. And it easily, naturally, almost unconsciously, we transmit that to our relationship with God. Surely we must do the same. We have to deserve our seat. We have to earn that love. But friends, we're doing it wrong. There's not enough good we can ever do to earn God's love. 
and there's not enough bad we can ever do to be separated from God's love because it has always been about God. Paul wants us to have peace of mind, to have confidence, to have courage in that God is the author of our salvation, not our efforts. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we often put a lot of emphasis on that confess and believe as things that we've got to do. And we forget that this verse is in the middle of a passage where Paul is saying that you cannot do anything to be saved. That it's God. And maybe faith is something that we rest in or surrender to rather than muster up. I heard a pastor use the metaphor of floating on a river to help explain this, and I thought, well, if there's ever a metaphor Missourians should get, it would be about floating on a river because we love our float trips. And he told his congregation about thinking about a river winding around the base of a cliff. And on that cliff are rock climbers with helmets and harnesses, and they're going up that cliff one risky maneuver at a time. And while in the river are below people floating on inner tubes, staring up at that cliff and saying, would you look at that? I mean, they're really impressed by those rock climbers, but they know they don't have the skill to do that. But they can float down the river, and they can trust those tubes to hold them up. And if you can understand that illustration as a parable, you can see he's talking about two kind of approaches to salvation. One where you trust your skill as a rock climber, and one where you trust the principle of buoyancy. See, Paul had been climbing his whole life. He was really good at it, probably one of the best of his time. But the cliff was high. It reached up into the clouds, and Paul was never really sure if he could actually get to the top or not. But now he was trusting Jesus for his salvation, floating down the river of life, supported by grace, surrounded by love, and in no danger of sinking. Well, isn't he doing something, you might ask? Wasn't he trusting Jesus? Well, yes. Yes, he was. But he was doing it in the same way that you trust water to hold you up when you're floating in an inner tube. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to do anything. You just have to float. And here's the good thing, the good news. Not everyone can climb a cliff, but everyone can float in an inner tube. Many of us feel like we're doing it wrong in life. Parenting, marriage, friendship, work, relationships, faith, school. We feel like we pulled in the wrong direction and everyone's yelling at us that you've done it the wrong way. And many of us feel like we're halfway up the cliff or at the base looking up going, there's no way I can make that climb. There's no way I can keep going. And some of us believe, without even realizing it, that we're fine at the river, but we don't even need an inner tube. Because if we have enough faith, we should be able to walk on the water. I mean, wasn't that the problem of the disciple Simon Peter? When he walked on the water in the storm toward Jesus and they began to sink? That he lacked faith, and if he had just believed enough, believed harder, if he had been more faithful, he could have walked on water too. 
But friends, Jesus never actually asked Peter to walk on the water. Peter gave Jesus an ultimatum. If it's you, Lord, tell me to come to you. And Jesus is like, well, it is me. So come, Peter. And Peter comes to him and begins to sink. But maybe Jesus never expected Peter to actually walk on the water to prove his faith. You know, he had told the disciples to get in the boat and to trust that Jesus would be with them in the storms. But they didn't. They didn't trust, and they were afraid. And perhaps that was their lack of faith, rather than Peter's inability to walk on the water. About that story, author and pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber wrote this. Like Peter could have kept walking on water if he just thought, I think I can, I think I can, enough. The message being that with enough faith, you too can walk on water all the way to Jesus, which on the surface sounds really inspiring. But taken to its logical conclusion, it also means that if you are not godlike in your ability to overcome all your fears and failings as a human, if you are not godlike in your ability to defy the forces of nature, well, then the problem isn't a limit of human potential. The problem is the limits of your faith, and you should probably muster up some more. I mean, if, if we could just muster up what it takes to do what Jesus did, doesn't that mean we wouldn't really need the guy anymore? I mean, if you can make yourself that Christ-like, you'll never need again the need of healing. Mercy and forgiveness will be things other people need, but not you. But that doesn't sound like faith to me. That sounds like arrogance. You know, arrogance was what Paul was fighting in the early church. Some would say the church has never faced a bigger conflict, a bigger controversy than whether to let the Gentiles in on that circle of salvation. See, the Jews think they have salvation because of following the law. The Gentiles have salvation by having faith. And Paul says, for there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. There's no room for arrogance in the church. The circle of believers that was once defined by the boundaries, the law, is now defined by its center, who is Jesus Christ. And the tension to who is in and who is out is no longer the focus. Rather, the focus is on the one who calls and redeems and loves all. Friends, brokenness is the gap between the people that we strive to be and the flawed people that we are. Brokenness is the gap between God's perfection and our own imperfection. Brokenness is the divisions that we create and defend between all of us and God's creation. And Jesus Christ repairs the brokenness. Jesus Christ restores what was broken, fulfilling God's law. There is no cliff to climb. Everyone is invited to float supported by grace, surrounded by love, and in no danger of sinking. We simply have to decide to get in the river. And so, friends, shall we gather at the river? Shall we go down to the river to pray? 
Shall we get in our inner tubes, trusting God's grace and love to carry us, not our own efforts? For when we confess that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts by trusting what God has done for us, we'll get peace like a river. We'll get love like a river. We'll get joy like a river down deep in our soul. And not just you, and not just me, but everyone who is willing to float. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you know us. You know our hearts. You know how much we want to believe. But you also know, like Peter, we can step out on the water and sink like a stone. There you are, holding out your hand, ready to lift us up and help us back to the boat. Ready to help us try again to trust you in the storms. You never give up on us. May we never give up on you. May we trust you with our salvation rather than our own efforts or works. And may our good works be a response to your love, not a way to try and deserve or earn it. May we trust you with every aspect of our living and being. May we breathe in the Holy Spirit and breathe out your mission as your people in this world. For the glory of God and the good of the world. Amen.